What up? What is up? What is up? Existentially. I don't know. I'm open Mike Eagle. This is what it happened was. This is season three, episode 12. It's easy for me to remember what the number is this time because there's only 12 episodes in this season, which means this is the final episode of this season. This is our final walk down memory lane with Dante Ross. And as in other seasons, when we get to this point in memory lane, it's basically yesterday. We're catching up with Dante on everything that happened after his multi-platinum album that he made with Everlast, Whitey Ford Sings the Blues. He ends up winning a Grammy doing a song with Everlast and Santana. Uh, for a while, he becomes uh, the rock remixer of the day due to the success of a kind of rock breakbeat hybrid sound that he uh, helps to introduce into the lexicon. He ends up putting together a, a stimulated dummies compilation with John Gamble based on a lot of the music that Dave made. So it's basically a phase of his artist where he's very artist oriented as a producer. And um, and in terms of compiling works that he's done already and, and rap that he's made with a bunch of people into the stimulated dummy stuff. And then he ends up going back into A&R. And it's really amazing. I mean, if you listen to this season and you can lay down all the obvious successes and home runs that Dante Ross has hit as being a person who can see talent and put talent in a place to succeed. It's really amazing that after all this time with him getting back into into A&R, it's well, you'll just have to listen to see uh, what his recent exploits in A&R have been and how ironic it all is when you look at it as a whole. And aside from that, we'll be able to read more about Dante's story and his book that he'll be coming out with a little later this year. So we want to make sure that we support that. All in all, what an incredible season, what an incredible journey, starting with, you know, Lower East Side of New York, late 70s, early 80s, you know, while hip hop is just beginning to cross over into American culture and he's seeing it. And he gets deeper and, and goes to check out acts in the Bronx and starts, you know, working with artists at Tommy Boy and then signing incredible artists to Elektra and ultimately, you know, making a super successful album with Everlast and then winning a Grammy. It's been an, a, uh, a crazy, a crazy. It's been an a crazy mod. It's been an amazing ride. Shout out to Dante Ross. Shout out to all the listeners. Shout out to Stony Island Network and all the other shows on our podcast network, our very hip hop oriented podcast network. And I'm saying that with a little extra salt in my voice just because, uh, you know, somebody asked us about language. What? What? Man, look. Man, look. Anyway, I'm open Mike Eagle, your humble host. And, um, these are always a, a pleasure and a privilege for me to do these artists that I respect to no end, um, give us insight into their lives and allow us to create a platform for them to tell 
these stories that I feel like really need to be heard. So thank you for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed what we've put out, please leave us ratings and reviews. Thumbs up on things and five stars, places where the stars are it. Subscribe. There's full episodes up on YouTube plus clips. And let people know they're in the hip hop and the stories behind some classic albums. Get with us over here. What had happened was on the Stony Island Audio Network. Here it is. Episode 12. Dante Ross. What had happened was. Wait, real quick. Shout out my editor, Jake Bowman, who's responsible for making this podcast sound as awesome and as immersive as it does. Shout out to Talkhouse, who helps us put these things out into the world. Um, shout out all our advertisers this this season. And that is it. Welcome, man. This is Open Mike Eagle. This is season three of What It Happened Was, y'all. We got another very special guest with us. He needs no introduction, but... If you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre. Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker. Aganar innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters. Office messenger, the Grammy winner. Motherfucker Dante Ross. In the 90s, you would call him the plug. Signing act after dope act. He saw in the clubs as Pete, CL leaders, Dale, and all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. Peace, peace, peace. This is Open Mike Eagle, and welcome to the final episode of season three of What It Happened Was. We've come a long way, y'all. Um, with our very esteemed guest for the season. One last time, how you doing, Mr. Dante Ross? Good. How are you, man? Man, I'm chilling. I'm chilling, man. Um, I'm um I'm in 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 awe of the stories and and tales and uh rises and falls and and all of that that we got out this season. Um one thing I'm always curious of when I get to this point with people we talk to on this show is, is to ask how it feels for you to have laid all of this stuff out verbally um, over the course of the time that we've been recording. I mean, it's cool. You know, I, I've worked on a book the last few years that will actually come out in September. Um, so I kind of had my story relatively concise or chronological. So I, I was... Um, in tune with the story, I will say, listening back to some of it, um, I talk too fucking much. <laughs> but this you're supposed to talk too much. Yeah, I guess. That's man. the whole hook um, of the show. If I was talking too much, it'd be a problem. Overall, it's cool. And I like the response that we've been getting from people. I have not seen one negative anything. It's all positive. So so that's cool, man. And, um, you know, you're you're a good interviewer. You're not a, obtrusive. So, um, so, you know, I dig it. It was cool. I, I'm really not... I've done a bunch of podcasts and I'm not super into the podcast mm -hmm. thing. I kind of kind of ran its course, but this actually was cool. It, it didn't feel invasive where sometimes that stuff feels invasive. I feel you. And I'm glad it's been comfortable for you. Um, in, in revisiting some of the stuff in your history, in your career, um, 
I wonder, has it given you any new perspective on anything? It did. It, it, particularly an episode I, I'm struggling with right now. I, I felt um, I was un, I was merciless in, in my comments on Charlie Brown, and I, mm. I feel like I want to walk some of that back. I felt that that, that was grievous a little bit. I, I was surprised at how much the resentments I had for him lingered. Mm. So that was one thing that bothered me a little bit. And I think everything else I'm pretty cool with. You know, I'm I'm a relatively, I'm a pretty um, honest person. I don't always win. I'm not always the biggest, baddest dog in the room and all of that. And I think that that helps me not say too many things or relate too many personal feelings that I regret mm. expressing. So, you know. We'll probably dig into it a little bit more towards the end of this conversation, but I'm curious, since you brought up the book, what can you tell people about the book at this point, or what would you tell people about the book at this point? The book is um, some of the ground here, but there's a lot more to it. Right. Um, it, it it deals with my childhood on the Lower East Side a lot more, and my interpersonal relationships with my parents, particularly my father, who was a writer, and um, it, it's... Um, it was almost like an exorcism. It was very cathartic. It's been a really long time. I've had a lot of ups and downs in writing the book. Um, but but um, that said, if you read the book, you'll get to understand kind of my pathos and ethos a bit and understand that everything I did has a purpose and comes from a specific place, if nothing else. And a lot of that is how I was raised, where I was raised, and who I was raised by. So that stuff is as important as any of the antidotes about old dirty bastard or, <laughs> or anyone else. I think um, that's, that's part of it. Also, the book talks about, uh, you know, recovery and emotional loss and things that are kind of universal for, for a lot of people, especially when they get to my age. So I think if you read the book, you will not only get a New York, well, you won't only get a music-driven story, you'll get a very New York-centric, um, artistic story that goes through like kind of the, evolution of myself and New York's at the same time. They kind of work hand in hand. So it's a very New York-centric book. And it sounds like it's going to be a lot more personal, which it's is It's way really more cool. personal. It's it's not as much me talking about other people. And and one thing about it, too, is um, I am a fly on the wall a bit in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, my greatest talent is finding talent right? Seeing talent in others. And that's kind of what it's about. It, it is very respectful. Like I think the podcasters, to all the people I worked with then has a sense of gratitude, which I have for all the stuff I've been lucky enough to be involved in. I want to pick back up to uh, pretty much where we were at after the last time we talked, which has been a minute. We talked about, you know, you went in a Grammy working with Carlos Santana Right. Um, and working with Everlast and how, you know, you got the chance to work with Santana a few times and then, you know, mm-hmm. all of that culminating in this in this, you know, industry standard music award. And what we were about to get into was what the next phase of your career was like right around right. then. I mean it's covering a lot of ground. That's like probably fifteen years. That's twenty years. So but I, but immediately in that phase, you know, like what do you what do you start doing once you get recognized with with that kind of award for production? Where do you go from? Well, there? well, you know, like when I did Whitey Ford sings the blues prior to doing, which led me to getting mm-hmm. the Santana gig. I was working a lot. There was a lot of work for me. You know, I I slugged it out, and I I did like a gang of rock rap like new metal remixes. Mm-hmm. I became like the metal remixer du jour for a minute. 
And I did a lot of that stuff. And I'd worked on a second Everlast record. I got a label deal, an imprint deal at Loud. I put out some, a bunch of 12 inches. None of them were overwhelmingly successful. Um, I made a Stimulated Dummies record, a compilation for Loud, which got me out of a huge publishing deal. And I got <laughs> fucking, I got a shit ton of money on the back end. Not a shit ton, but I got a lot of money on the back end. I produced this group called Hesher that was a bidding war group. And we signed to Warner Brothers and we we're comp- and the record went wood in the hood quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually, I think, a pretty decent record, but it, it never really got out the gate. They fired the head of A&R, the guy who signed it, the president of the A&R department, um, Joe McCune, right before the record came out. It landed in the lap of David Kahn, who had very little interest in it and um, talked to me like I was an asshole. And that didn't help the record at all because I, I told him, um, exactly how I felt about his critiques. And he did a remix that was horrible to me. And after I told him, I, I thought it sucked. He wasn't going to, um, it was pretty clear that that was not going to get any light. Hmm. So, so I, you know, wrote songs. I, you know, I, I had a publishing deal and I wrote a bunch of songs and played some of them and produced a bunch of record for people who are not that notable, but I just kept making music and it was enjoyable. It didn't last that long. By the time we, did the Santana stuff, which was really, really fun. I ended up working on a next Everlast record that mm-hmm. I thought was really, really good. It did not replicate the success of the first record, in part because Everlast and Eminem had a feud, and Eminem, you know, I hate saying it, but he played a better Art of War mm-hmm. than Everlast did, and um, it really hurt the record's chances, and it won gold, but... We're coming off triple platinum, and that's a downward trend. So so post that, we waited probably too long to do the record, and it didn't, to me, have enough rap elements on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I kind of, my career was kind of like up and down a bit as a producer and a songwriter. Um, the songwriting game's really fucking hard. I didn't realize how hard and formulaic it is. But I got some things off. You know, I did another song for Santana, and somewhere along there, I... I uh, I got two songs on the Eight Mile soundtrack, the irony of mm-hmm. which was not lost on anyone <laughs> around me. Um, and is a testament to how goddamn cool Paul Rosenberg and Marshall Mathers are because they could have very easily been like, fuck that, that's Everlast Guy. Um, and they weren't. And, and I really thank those guys because that was like a really big check when I got my royalty, like a super nice one. The record's like seven, eight times platinum. You know, I did some stuff like that. And I, I kept making like kind of undergroundy stuff. I like work with Dell a little and some other guys. Wrote some songs, got a, a couple of songs on some records. I worked with a few people like Josh Stone and and um, Anthony Hamilton a little mm-hmm. bit and some stuff like that. But, you know, it, you know, I got another publishing deal and I really focused on trying to be a songwriter for several years. And it's one of the few things I really tried to do that I, I did not, I was not fruitful at. I, it didn't. It didn't really come to fruition, and I found out a lot about songwriting, mostly that I probably wasn't good enough to be a major label songwriter, hmm. um, and, and and I found out the hard way. But, you know, and me and my partner, John Gamble, we went our separate ways at one point, I think shortly after I did a Fun Lemon Criminals record that never came out and, um, and did the Eight Miles stuff. I think shortly thereafter, we departed. And um, I, I, uh, I worked on making music for a while. I scored some TV stuff, some film stuff. Um, 
but it, it wasn't what it was. And, and I was polishing turds at this point. Um, <laughs> so it felt. And, and after polishing one too many turds, I, I had to put it down. It was not enjoyable for me anymore. And um, technology had shifted a lot. I'd had a long run and um, it was just too much for me. I had to kind of walk away from it for a while. So what you just gave us is kind of the outline of, of uh, some stuff I'm going to zoom in on um, and, and kind of move from, from era to era a little bit. I wanted to um, focus on some of the 1998 stuff, uh, specifically Corn. Mm-hmm. You do a Freak on the Leash remix. It's a pretty damn yeah. big song. And, it, and the remix was big, too. It was mm-hmm. big at rock radio. K-Rock started playing it. Um, and there were some intricacies behind it. So when you do a remix, um, it's a work for hire. But I wrote all the music for it. I threw away all their music. You just used the vocals. Up, right. And it ended up on a Puma ad. And they didn't want to pay me. Wow. And I, it became a point of contention. But to Jonathan Davis and uh, Peter Katz's, um moral clock and ethical manners, they did end up paying me. Now, Jonathan Davis is the lead singer. Who He's was the lead second singer person? Um, he was his manager, okay. Peter Katzis. And, and I was, um, the firm liked me. You know, they, they were giving me work and... And um, when it showed up on a Puma commercial, I called up Katz is pissed. And he actually paid me some money, like a decent check, and gave me a double whammy where he had me remix another record. I remixed four corn records, I believe. Mm-hmm. I did some Incubus stuff and some other stuff. But but um, that remix in and of itself was was really successful and popular and got me a lot more work. And other besides that, I thought the remix was really cool. I mean, I, I used some interesting source material that I'll leave nameless. <laughs> but but if you listen to it, you know what those drums are. You know, I thought it was cool. It was it was also challenging because I can't say I loved that song necessarily or that corn was my bag, but I respected it. Of all those bands, I think I respected them the most. The, obviously Rage, who I love, but right. but Corn, because they were early um on doing that stuff. And they were top of the food chain. So it was cool to do that. It was top of the food chain at the top of their career. And corn isn't necessarily part of this, but I wanted to know what you thought about like that rock rap stuff that was going on at that time. You know, look, I like Beck a lot. He mm-hmm. was a big influence on Whitey Ford Sings the Blues. And I love the Beasties when they picked up the instruments. And, you know, I'm like a Beastie Boy stand kind of. So, so, you know, I dug all that. Um, there were pockets of things I liked. I love Rage Against the Machine. Um, who were the granddaddies of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like always say, like, don't blame Jimi Hendrix for all the terrible heavy metal. Don't blame Rage Against the Machine for all the terrible new metal, right? I like some of it. I like the Deftones and mm-hmm. and select things. Overall, it wasn't really for me. I didn't really like Limp Biscuit. I don't even know if I respected it. I think I respected Fred Durst Hustle. He sold the dream. But for me, it, it felt kind of weird. It wasn't my thing. It's not where I come from. I like heavy music a lot. You know, Bad Brains, Black Flag, Black Sabbath, et cetera. I don't know if I like that heavy music. Right. You know? and, 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 it's, and it's funny, too, because what you wouldn't know is I like like old thrash metal. Like mm-hmm. I love Slayer 
and, and I even like Judas Priest kind of and Iron Maiden and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I have an affinity for heavy music beyond just punk rock. And, and it just, some of that stuff was like, there's a lot of posturing involved. And it felt like dudes were, um, what they thought was, was hip hop hmm. wasn't really hip hop to me. And you end up being, in some senses, the go-to guy for the re- the the, the, the hip hop sound and remix of the rock yeah. song. And without, I without, can't even say. But were they hip hop sounding? I can't say they're necessarily. And that's what I was saying because Corn wasn't rapping, but they're kind of put alongside that. And maybe because they was wearing baggy clothes or something, but it wasn't like all of it wasn't rock rap. But all right. of it kind of feels like it's part of the same thing, you know. And and you got to remember that Corn is probably. Well, you know, there's Faith No More who rapped and right. was making rap music even before, you know, um, Ray Chance the Machine. And I actually, I really like Faith No More. Their, their first, the rec, first record with with Mike Patton is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have prog rock shit. There's just a fucking whole other thing. So, not to digress. Um, yeah, a lot of that stuff was kind of awkward, man. Like, I guess I like the Deftones, maybe an Incubus, because they didn't rap, right? right? But but I thought it was a little corny that they all had a turntable guy. It was weird. Like, it was we, a we, weird we, little time. It was like it was kind of weird and <laughs> and that was just weird to me, man. That, like and that stuff was just like another a gimmick kind of, yeah. you know. Um, where like Everlast comes from that background and Beck was never a gimmick to me like that. Though he kind of played the ironic white guy, like I'm ironic hipster white guy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm funky, you know but he was I mean? he was that before anybody knew it could be successful, though. You know, right? So right, he was out he was, on the right, ledge doing that. Right, right. He was on with loser and all that. He was right. on a limb, like you know, and that's so much before, so way before all this mm-hmm. stuff, right? Odalay is way after the, is a couple years after that. So and and the thing about Beck, he's a really good songwriter. Mm-hmm. And there was this other group I really liked that predates kind of the rock rap thing, um, and and that's this band called Eels. Hmm. Um, and, and you should check them out. This guy, Michael E. And there was, there was signed to DreamWork. They had a record, Beautiful Freak, that Mike Simpson worked on. And that record has hip hop elements in, a, in it and rhythmic things that feel hip hop without being corny. Without having to name any names, did you end up having to turn down remix yes. stuff at that time? Because that yes. was shit you thought was top, corny. That top of the, other than corn, the top of the food chain band, I turned them down. Nice. All right. Um, 2000. It's pretty much the height of of you being successful with the rock rap kind of sound or the the remix sound. Uh, in um, two thousand, I should have brought back Pooba to do two thousand with Corn. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess he was a little ahead of that one. Um, he was way ahead of the curve. But at the height of that, you come back to rap with Stimulated Records. Um, yeah, and the, and that. While I was doing that, though, remember I was also doing like I like did um this group, the getaway people. I, I did a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like my attention was divided. What I'm curious with stimulated and, and seemingly like the pivot back into, yo, we about to do some hip hop shit. Like what, what was the plan? Was it to have a fully fledged record label with artists and, and that to be a thing? Or was it more of a, does it always seen as like a temporary thing? So I love hip hop. I love making beats and, there was money on the table for me. Mm-hmm. So I took the money and I definitely couldn't um, bring rock bands 
two loud records. Right. That wasn't going to work. So this and was I, a, a, a conjunct, in conjunction with loud, with stimulating right, records. Okay. Right, because Steve always liked me and wanted to do something with me. So, so I ended up doing this thing with Steve. He's an old friend of mine. Um, at the same time, I also had a deal at Epic Records for uh, a track deal. And I had a 10-track deal at Epic Records. And this is, this is unimaginable how this happened. So it was, you know, $20,000 a track, $200,000 deal. They gave me X amount of money up front, half of it. Um, and I never delivered one song. The guy Whoa. who gave me the deal got fired. And no one ever followed up on anything. And I was doing remixes for Korn, who were signed to Epic wow. and others, and they never cross-balanced it. I, wait, so what does that mean? Like That means it's free money. Well, there you go. <laughs> and, and I don't want to say that loud was free money, but it was kind of free money. It was, you know, and look, I knew loud was, this is so fucked up to say, the writing was on the wall kind of out loud and my relationship with them. It mm. was not smooth. And no fault of Steve or Rich Isaacson. I love those guys. It, it was not, none of that. It just wasn't smooth. And it was different. I got put in a box I didn't deserve to be in and it, it wasn't really working out. So I was like, let me get this stimulated compilation off just because I have all this music and it will help me get out of my publishing deal. Mm. I'll deliver X amount of songs. So it did. And so in your eyes, it wasn't like a thing that you had planned to build into a big record label with catalog nope. and all of that. I mean, I, I did, but you know, like my, I think my intention was never focused on that. Mm -hmm. I was chasing doing bigger records, finishing the second Everlast record, doing all these remixes. Right. Cause uh, all that is happening at the same time. Basically. It's all happening at the same time. And, um, the other thing was like I had a very active social life during this time. Okay, period. okay, like extremely active, um, and I was um, I was in brutal shape. I was really into working out, so I was like really fit, and I was juggling a bunch of women, and uh, and hanging out a lot, and just being a you know like reaping the benefits of success. Here's a question, and so that makes me want to ask about this because I know when you're doing that first ever last record. It goes along with the moment of you like slowing down, um, working on the mental, you know, like kind of coming yep. to a sense of inner peace. Um, by the time you're, you know, you have become successful with the production stuff, has it caused you to lose a little bit of that? <laughs> Definitely. Mm -hmm. I lost sight of that for sure. I, uh, I'd waited a few seasons to be successful again so you know i had a lot of money and, um, <laughs> i wanted to buy things like look man i had a lot of i had a lot of chains i bought a lot of gold chains wow. and, and a lot of jewelry and you know i went on a lot of vacations and you know did a there was nothing if i wanted it i bought it like i didn't care and and that, in the midst of that i met a really uh, a tremendous woman one of the loves of my life too and and um <laughs> of course Having one of the loves of my life, um, while I was still half crazy, didn't really work out well for me. So to say, just it didn't really didn't really work out for, with my lifestyle, which I didn't necessarily change. Hmm. So you know there was a lot going on, and and I was all over the place. To say my my energy wasn't focused would be an understatement. Where I was also smoking 
more weed than Cypress Hill and Bob Marley combined. That's too much weed, Dante. How, how did Man, you survive? You have no that? idea. You have no idea. I mean, even if you look at the Stimulated Dummy single, it's taken through a bomb. Wow, okay. okay I mean, I was smoking life. a massive amount of weed all the time, and, and it did me no favors. Do you still smoke a lot of weed? I don't do anything. I've been sober for 12 years. Wow. 11 years, going on 12. Yeah, I don't, I don't do any. I drink coffee. That's what's up. Yeah, that's it. Um, in 2002 is when the 8 Mile soundtrack comes out. Was and that when it came out? At least that's what Wikipedia said. You yeah, know, that you might never. be, right. Could be um, right. Just to take that in baby steps, like how does that opportunity come your way? Um, it was luck of the draw. Hmm. I went to L.A., I was maybe going to get managed by this dude named Dom Trenier, who died not that long ago, rest in peace. And maybe him, but really his assistant, my man Jihad Shaw, got me in a room with Macy Gray. So I, I got in a room with Macy Gray, and I went in the studio, and she was working with Dallas Austin and Mark Ronson. Dallas was outside, and his gear was all set up, and Ronson was in the studio programming something. And um, he was having trouble locking the tape, and I actually helped him with the offset. I, I showed him what to do a little bit. And um, I played Macy a bunch of songs. I think I was like 20 songs in on the, on the CD, literally. And like the last song, she was like, oh, I want to fuck with that. I got this thing for 8 Mile Soundtrack, and we should, we should go and do this. So mm. And these Macy, are songs you had wrote that you were playing? They were tracks. Okay. Um, oh, so beats that you had made, basically. Yeah, but they were much more musical than beats. I right, just call right. them beats. Because the other thing is, after working on Everlast, I use a lot of live musicians. Mm -hmm. And and um, I could fake it a little bit on the keys and so could Gamble. So we did a lot of live stuff and we recorded stuff live and chopped it up kind of like samples. Mm -hmm. So if you listen to that corn stuff, that's all live, like Freak of the Leash. That's Freak of the Leash is live except for the drums. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I also like, I work, whatever, so I don't want to digress. So I um, also had figured out how to record live drums and a bunch of other stuff. So I um, did the song for Macy. She called me up and was like, I'm going to track vocals for this. I have an idea for the chorus to put little kids in it. I was like, that's really cool. Track the vocals, send it back to me. She then called me and said, I want to add some keys. I was like, I could do that. I could write the Rhodes part. She says, well, I have Mike Elizondo in the studio. I'm going to do it. And I was like, so I'm seeing some of my publishing walk away. I didn't think that was that cool. <laughs> um, and so, so she um, recorded some keys that are very incidental, in my opinion, and just block chords that anyone could have added to mm -hmm. it, um, including myself or her probably. I am playing melodica on the song, on the demo. I was listening to Augustus Pablo, and I was like, I want to learn how to play the melodica. So it's one scale, so I went and bought it, and I figured out the little riff. Mm -hmm. So um, I played it. I made the song. So, you know, I sent her the session. She tracked it out. Maybe I tracked it on sent it to her. I can't remember exactly. But so she had the session. It's four eight mile. I mix it. My mix is banging. She doesn't like one ad lib on it and she changes the whole mix. Straight up. The final um, mix. I don't, yeah, I don't like the mix on the album. And I was like, yo, the, you know, 
that me and her did not have a smooth rapport. She, um, I mean, fuck it. I'll, I'll say it. She, she um, came up short on what she tried to pay me. Mm. She didn't realize is that my lawyer was the lawyer um, who was doing all the admin for, for the um, soundtrack because he's M's lawyer. Gotcha. So I got the call from Paul Rosenberg. He's like, look, man, I'm going to talk to Macy for you and straighten this out because we want the record. But, um, you know, either you can take what we sort out or we just won't use the record. It's up to you, D. Like, it's actually really cool what he did. And Paul, and, and look, I'm going to say it. She offered me, my advances for records there were like $20,000 a pop at that point. You know, and she offered me a Tommy Boy remix price from 1995. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yo, this this isn't dope on plastic. <laughs> like, that's not really. And we, we had a heated discussion. But she agreed to pay me somewhere between what I should have got and what I got for Uptown Dope on Plastic. Mm. So it was less than usual. Gotcha. Um, and it, it left no, there was no love lost between us. And we never worked together again. Um, I probably didn't handle the situation really well, but it is what it is. So the song gets, they they tell me, so I'm working, literally doing a fun-loving criminal song when I mixed it. She didn't like my mix. Um, whatever. They used her mix. I was bummed out. But they tell me, Mark LaBelle, who worked for M, he's my he's my friend from like junior high school or grade school. So I've known him my whole life. He's from my neighborhood. I've known him forever before music. Um, he's one of the only other white kids who grew up in my kind of neighborhood and 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 was outside a lot of there were some white kids but they were inside so um <laughs> so so mark who's my man it's like he um he blesses this thing it, it's on the album and and at the same time me and young z were fucking around he has a song unstimulated he's my man yo and i love young z I, and yo, i love so i love good. this song too but i i definitely want to get into you know how where you were young z and outsiders and all of that so so i didn't really know them like that I wasn't really part of the sound bombing moment in life. I was in Cali doing Everlast, and I'm a little older than them dudes, and I, I never was a backpacker, and neither is Young Z for that matter, but I wasn't in that world like that. Look, I knew all the guys in Fat Beats, um, and I put out some records that might have been underground, I guess, but um, I like girls and gold chains. And so nice what you wasn't around for was when it split. Like Rockets. when it became the dichotomy, when it was like, oh, right. mainstream is this and underground is this. Right. I right. See. Which see. is ironic, right? Because um Dell and and um Dell and and I would say even Sadat X and certainly Doom are all kind of, you know, underground um archetypes, right? Absolutely. So so they're guys who lay the foundation for that. And and Doom to me is the guy who set off all the backpack underground shit, him and Cool Keith, mm-hmm. you know, company flow, a couple others. And and I think I so I like the upper echelon of what was early backpack. I like Cool Keith. I like hieroglyphics. Um, I like Doom. I like Company Flow. But but a lot of it, you know, was just dudes rap too good for me or something. It's just not, <laughs> I can't. I don't relate to as as we would say the the uh, the third eye metaphysical lyrical miracle guy. That's mm-hmm. not my thing. So so not to digress again. Um, Z is my man. I think Dart Parker was, he was my A&R guy. He put Z on the record. He was an outsider fan. He was down with all the shady camp. He came from there. So it was a natural fit to put on the album. I met Z. I talked about signing him. I think they might have been signed 
So yeah, at that point, yeah, Z had a he had a solo deal even before the outs that the outsiders. And I can't remember where it was at, but he did. He was. I want to say earlier. Columbia, Epic, yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. Um. So Z has a deal, I think, and it's me and him were just vibing out. He was a funny ass dude, and um, and Rod Diggers his girl, and I mm-hmm. knew her, and they came by the studio, and we would get drunk in the studio, and and um, I went to L.A. doing my compilation. And um, I made the beat in L.A. My man had sold me Kefis, who was the keyboard player for um, Everlast, sold me this little Moog. It's called the Rogue. It's a bass module. Dre used it on uh, the Mary J. Blige joint. Hmm. That oh, sound. Yeah. It's a really cool sound. So Kefis showed me how to use it. And I made the beat on that machine in L.A. He, he, I played the bass line. And he played he played chords on it for me, I think. But I played the bass line. I played most of it. It's it's really simple if you listen to it. And I was I was psyched because I made a beat on the Moog. I was like, no samples. It's on the Moog. Bong bong. Mm-hmm. I took it back. I had my man play a little guitar on it. And Z heard the track and he wanted to rock on it. We did the track in my studio. Probably drunk, definitely high. <laughs> and I never thought about it. I didn't think about it. I was like, it's cool. I don't know if it's a song song. Like, we got to tighten it up. And Z and me was just building. I got a call from Z. And he was in Atlanta. And he said, yo, I'm on the tour bus with Eminem. It was late at night. And he said, and they want to use the song. I said, what? He said, yeah, they want to use the song. And um, either Danan or Bazaar was in the background going, yo, yo, OG, we want that one. I was like, yo, make it happen. Tell them whatever's good is good. Um, I'm in. And and he was like, I remember he said, yeah, Marshall really likes it. And I was like, that's ill. That's so true. I got the call from Mark LaBelle a day or so later. He said, yo, we're on a crunch, crunch time deadline. We're going to straighten you out. And they're good money over there. Shady. So I'm like, cool. Let's just go do it. I was literally in the middle of doing Fun Loving Criminals album without John, without John Gamble. Me and him, our, our marriage was falling apart. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yo, Gams, I need you to track the session and Z's going to redo vocals. I can't be there at X o'clock. I'm in the middle of doing a session, but I'm going to come right from Magic Shop over there and do it. And he was like, okay. And he went there and he did it. And then I showed up and we finished it. And I mixed it. The mix was pretty good. I got it to Mark and they were like, Bong, you got another one. And um, I remember they they paid me what my real price was, not a Macy Gray price. <laughs> Shots taken. It was all love. It was all good. And I had bong. I had two songs on the Eight Mile soundtrack, which is you know funny. Did you ever end up coming in contact with him throughout through that process? No, I did not. I saw him at the album release party in passing. That was it. I remember Paul Rosenberg telling me I was the only producer outside of that camp who had two joints on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I got two. Yeah, I, I got two joints when I ain't got no singles. And he laughed because <laughs> we both know they're not singles. And and it was all love, you know. And he said he was happy for me. He's like, yo, I'm, I'm happy for you. He's like, it's going to, I remember he told me, it feels good to know that you're going to get a check out of this. Not like we're best friends or anything, but he had respect for me and vice versa. So we never got caught up in it. I remember I was hot 
when I heard the first thing. And I'll even backtrack. Paul and Theo gave me an option to to uh, tell to get Eric to take his rhyme off of the um, Dilated People's record. He declined to take it off. And I was mad. There was a heated discussion with me and Paul or me and Theo in the club. And Paul was actually laughing because I was so mad. But I also know that those guys realized that I got to ride with my man. Right. And I really did. It was offered to him to take take it off the record and they wouldn't go for his throat. And he declined. You know, things are how they are. I, I don't want to, other than that. But I think it affected the outcome of a lot of things down the road. So Paul, I believe, was genuinely happy that he was going to put some food on my table after what had occurred. I mean, I can't read his mind, but that's the message I always got. So n- none of the static with the Everlast stuff was present during none of the, no parts of that process? Yo, man, I was always cool with proof. That's dope. Bazaar is my man. I had always had, my in my limited run-ins with M, which were like maybe once or twice, it was all good. And like I said, my man Mark LaBelle is his right-hand man, his road manager, and that's my dog from when we was kids. So we never... I don't, it, remarkably, I was never really in the mix of all of what was going on with all that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I was, I don't want to say I was Switzerland because I made it very clear that whatever had to happen had to happen. But me and Proof are the only people who ever really talked about it, talked through it. I'll, I'll leave our discussion it to, to me and Proof and Absolutely. God. Absolutely. Rest in peace. I will say this. It was funny, and it ended with us smoking some weed. There you go. Well, I mean, it was all of course love. it, it is. It was mean, all love. Probably and Proof started was that always way, like, too. You know, and, and look, like, not that I'm proud of it, but I always had, you know, I lived a crazy life at that time, and there was a lot of wild things going on in my life, and, and I was not a pedestrian. Hmm. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Man. Um, so then I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to the 2010s. Okay. Because. <laughs> the lean years. No, 2010s are good. Well, 2011, yeah. 2010s one. Well, 2010s are rough year because my dad's dying. Mm. But, but, you know, there was, 
a couple of lean seasons in there in the middle of those places. What it seems to be marked by in a general sense is a return for you to A&R and, and, and the business side of things. Like, it seems like the higher profile stuff is not so much production. It's like, oh, you got a job, VP of A&R at ADA. And even as, even as a, a record producer, I'm kind of an A&R guy, right? And so for me, they kind of went hand in hand. And, you know, doing A&R is really my real talent, I think. You know, more so, it was always more so than being a producer. Was there an exhaustion with doing the producer thing? Was there, was there any? It was. It's a, it's a rough hustle. You're on the other side of the desk playing dudes beats and shit. Right. And that shit is pointless. That shit is completely worthless. So what was your conversation like internally when you're like, I'm going to go back and be it on the other side of so, the desk? It wasn't so conscious. There was, I was, I was, um, I'd started doing all this marketing stuff for a bunch of people. And, and in the interim of stopping producing and before I went to work at, at ADA and all that, I, I started at WBR actually. I had worked for Steve Rifkin at SRC for a couple and I was vice president there for a minute and I brought him David Banner. Hmm. Um, and I, I helped work on the, Asher Roth record, and that that was like, that was just chaotic a little mm -hmm. bit, not that enjoyable. And no knock on Asher, I think he's a great dude, and you know he's a pretty good rapper. It just wasn't, it's was just like the the whole thing was fun funky. Um, my experience, so that ended, I think, in two seven, two oh seven, two oh eight, and I like I I had a gig like working with Pro Keds and a couple other things, and and I worked for Travis Barker. I was. Um, head of marketing at Famous Stars and Straps, uh, which is super bizarre, fucking weird as fuck for me to be over there. It's like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. That, that was his clothing company. Gotcha. So okay. I, I helped run his clothing company, and I was like his minister of cool, maybe. Like, I'd be like, hey, you know about this? You know about this? You've seen this? You, you know, kind of like that. And, and it just wasn't like, it wasn't a gig for me. He's a nice guy, but, you know, our tastes are very different. And, mm -hmm. And um, I don't have a tattoo on my head and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that guy. So, and I love LA, but I'm not, that's over there. That's Inland Empire LA. Hmm. That's not the LA I, I know. I'm more a Venice guy or whatever. So, so um, it was weird and it didn't really work out. My dad was really sick. Hmm. So I was in California. So I could see him a lot more. He's up in San Francisco. I spent a lot of time with my dad and he was going between San Francisco and Mexico and I got to hang with him a bunch, but he, he was dying. And it coincided with me having a terrible breakup with this, this woman um, who was way too young for me. So, I mean, she just was like, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good fit. The mm -hmm. age gap was more than a decade and a decade plus never works. So, so it wasn't a, a cool thing. And um, if it, it ended badly, coincided with my dad dying. Mm -hmm. I was in LA, I guess Leor had heard my dad pass and he reached out to me. And I went to visit him at WBR and he was like, what are you doing? I said, I'm working with Travis Barker, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, uh, how do you like it? I was like, basically, I was like, it's not for me. And he was like, okay, I, I'm going to find something for you. you. You need to be here with us. So I went back to New York. My father passed, actually. I went back to New York. My father was, you know, it was rough on me. I made a decision to stop drinking and, mm. and doing everything else I was doing. Coincidentally, right after I did that, I went and saw Lior, and he was—he told me he was really proud of me, and that he would have a job for me in, in a second. 
And this is so bizarre. I meditated. And after the first time I meditated by myself in my whole life in sobriety, my phone rang and they were like, hey, can you start Monday? Wow. And and that was like cosmic to me. And I started working at WBR, which which was very awkward. What was that job? I, I was director of A&R, pretty low on the totem pole. The money wasn't great. But you know what? I was like, you know what? Start wherever you can start. And, you know, like, let's see what's going on. So I took the job and I was working for Joey Manda, who's a nice guy who I knew for a long time. And um, Todd Moskowitz, another nice guy I've known for a long time. But, but no one was really checking for me. I feel like I was maybe thought of a little bit as Leor's like pet. Mm-hmm. Or Leor's like friend, he's doing a solid for a charity and, case. And I, yeah, a little bit. I hate saying that because mm-hmm. I never, you know, I don't like to look down. It's not a good thing to say about yourself, but but I did find a lot of shit there that I couldn't sign hmm. that they didn't let me sign, including Logic, uh, ASAP Rocky. I was the first one on that. Wow, they weren't fucking with with WBR though. And who else did I find? Oh, I had Action Bronson. I was managing Action, and I I tried to get him signed there and. And I was sternly told he was not getting signed there. And he literally ended up on Vice while I worked at WBR because he, me and Action were falling apart. It wasn't working. And I knew my days were numbered. So I threw the oop to, to Todd. I was like, I'm going to lose this. Like, I'm going to get nothing out of this. What's going on? And he's like, let's take it to Vice. And I threw the, threw the rock to the dude over at Vice. Dude completely does not acknowledge the fact I threw him the oop. Mm. Um, and and I fall out with, with Homeboy and with with Action. And it just, I got nothing out of it. You know, I didn't get a, a thing out of it whatsoever. It, it was pretty um, annoying, <laughs> to say the least. And in the midst of this, I'm working at WBR, I wanted to sign this guy named Macklemore. Whoa. So I, I saw Macklemore's videos and, and I saw how um, people were reacting. I want to sign Macklemore. I'm looking at what his ticket sales are doing. He ends up on the cover of XXL. I meet with Macklemore. He coincidentally is sober, which, is, which I didn't really know. I'm begging Lior to get me, let me sign him. Lior is dealing with a lot of stuff at work. Todd Moskowitz, who is my friend, still did not want to sign Macklemore and would not let me sign Macklemore. Hmm. And I believe that I had the inside track with, with Ben to do the deal. We had connected so much so that I was working, uh, I had side hustles working for that footwear brand Supra. I took him with me to, or he met me at this party we did at New Museum with Q-Tip and I introduced him to Q-Tip who was one of his, his heroes. And I stayed friends with Ben. So, but me wanting to sign him and to Warner Brothers wasn't going to happen. And Leor was like, you should send it over to ADA to Kenny, Kenny Wigley. And Kenny decides to do the record. And so I I don't want to say I signed him to ADA, but I wanted to sign him and I steered them to ADA. Hmm. So they end up doing a distro deal with ADA and Kenny starts sending me sales figures. Yo, we're going to ship 40,000. We're going to ship 70,000 first week. And it, it bong at 71,000 first week sales. Shortly thereafter, they decided the ADA should start an urban department. And I am, I am the guy who's going to, I don't say urban, but a rap 
kind mm-hmm. of element to it. And they put me in the driver's seat. So I go over there, um, leaving Warner's after, I think it was like almost two years. Oh, what I failed to say that in the midst of Warner's, at Warner's, Lior quits, Todd Moskowitz leaves, and Atlantic absolves the whole black department, mm-hmm. but not me. <clears throat> I am still at Warner Brothers. And it's a weird environment, right? It's and I'm tr- I was really I was really early on Chance the Rapper. Um, I was one. It was before. Um, it was when Ten Day came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. I went to Chicago to meet him and Pat, and he was playing with the Omis. And I went to Chicago and I met him and all the Chicago kids. I knew Mano and Holt from some shit I did with Ten Deep. So I knew all the Save Money guys. So I was around a lot of them. I met Vic then, I think, Vic Mensa, mm-hmm. and I wanted to sign Chance, who never did a deal anywhere. But I was told by my guys at ADA, we are not signing Chance. He will not become Macklemore. We're not doing individual deals. We're only doing label deals. I was like, give the kid a label deal, a distro deal, and let's do the whole thing. He puts all his, you know, it's I mean, that's what guy. Macklemore did basically too, right? Like he's, and he I'm is not, a label. And, and w- so... What was the difference between Macklemore and Chance the Rapper? Well, there's a there's a obvious one. <laughs> yeah, you tell me what the difference is. I mean, you know to what me, I mean? yeah, to me, yeah, you know. So, and Chance is starting to sell tickets and everything. Right. And look, I don't know if Chance and Pat would have even done the distro deal, but I was told it's not happening. Hmm. And I tried to get him on Atlantic, and he didn't want to be on a major. And look, those guys did it independently anyway. So I don't know if he would have done a distro deal. Not that he needed one, and it's it's all good, but. But I just, rem- and I recently looked at the email that was sternly saying, you like basically scolding me for trying to sign Chance the Rapper wow. for bringing it up repeatedly. Um, so who, who do you end up, who else do you end up signing at ADA? I signed, I Am Sue was the first guy I signed. I remember that name. Um, and I signed him because he was popping and I, I thought he was cool. The record didn't really pop off. I really liked his manager, Stretch, though. He's a really good dude. He manages 24K Golden now, I think. Um, and a bunch of other stuff. So um, I did that. And then I signed, um, I did a deal with the commission, was the next thing I did. And the commission was my friend, Anthony Martini, friend, maybe my friend, the guy I know. Um, he's my friend, I guess. Anthony Martini, and he had Little Dicky and Made in Tokyo. He didn't have Made in Tokyo yet. And I did the deal because I wanted Little Dicky. Hmm. Um, and I wanted Little Dicky because Little Dicky was probably not going to be met with resistance at ADA. Right. Right. So I brought in Little Dicky. And Little Dicky was popping at the time. And they knew exactly what they wanted, a distro deal. He was super smart when I met with him. And I believed it would sell. I also thought he was talented. In the midst of doing that deal, getting it done... We got the first record saved. I got saved that money. Um, oh, here's the other one I tried to sign. They wouldn't let me sign. They fucked it all up. It was Fetty Wap. Mm. So Craig Kalman gave me Fetty Wap. He's like, yo, we should do this. It's coming up on research. And I looked at the research. It was moving. So the deal was going to cost us 80 fucking thousand dollars. And we didn't do it. Said no. ADA we said f- no. ADA debted me on an $80,000 deal. And they really knew what it, they wanted, huh? They, <laughs> I mean, and I was like, and they were like, is Craig Calmas because Fetty Wap a star? I was like, he always got this weird eye thing, but yeah, I think so. He makes really good records. And here's the wildest thing. 
Trap Queen was the record that was moving. Right. It was it was out. It was starting to go. And I had it. And Danny, his manager, was like, yo, we want to do it with you. We just need 80. They got 80,000 for us at 300. Can you do that? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to try my hardest. And they wouldn't let me do it. Wow. So, and our lawyer was really lazy. He didn't do the, he didn't fucking track down their lawyer, who's still their lawyer, and it goes to 300. Mm. So, but we have the idea. Fatty Wap should be on the single. Because he's, by now, Trap Queen's a hit. Right. I, I said, yeah, I fuck with Danny. My friend Orlando signed him to 300. O puts the word in with Fetty Direct. I, I call Danny, Danny Sue. Danny's like, yeah, we need some money. We got in the brown paper bag with five Gs and homeboy does it. Homeboy does it. And the hook, he, he actually only did the verse first. We had a verse and we got him to do the hook. He did the hook. Aunt Martini got him to do the hook, I think. And because there was a hook there already, but it was done by Little Dicky and Rich Homie Quan was actually supposed to do it, but he kept trying to get more money mm. for it. So it didn't happen. So home, Rich Homie Quan's on the verse, not on the hook. Because Rich Homie Quan is kind of the first future, right? He's the first Fetty future. Hmm. Um, he he kind of gets there before everyone. Maybe future's there first, but si similar time because he had type away. So so we did the Dicky deal and the record goes and and you know, Dickie's really smart. Whatever you think about little Dickie, he's one of the most self-aware artists I've ever known. He does not lack in confidence. He told me from day one he was going to blow up and have a platinum record, and he did. Hmm. He told me, oh, yeah, I'm going platinum. Like, it was nothing. Like, oh, yeah, and we're going to sign with you because you make us laugh. Like, wow. every lady wants sons, but you're like, you're funny. Like, we were going to fuck with you. And I became good friends with this manager, Mike Kurtz, his day-to-day -day guy, and that's that. The rest is history. So in the midst of that, Made in Tokyo showed up. I knew about them. I had to deal with Sunny Digital. Sunny wanted was talking about signing them, and I was like, "Do it, do it, do it!" Because Uber everywhere was, was was getting love in Atlanta. He didn't do it. And weeks later, Aunt Martini was like, "What do you think of this Made in Tokyo?" I was like, "Yo, actually, that record Uber everywhere is hot. You need to get that." And Aunt flew him to New York, and I helped Aunt sell the dream. And Made in Tokyo is her second son. You know, it's interesting because, you know, now we're having a conversation about A&R, you know, 30 some odd years after, you know, you're having conversations and looking at artists for Tommy Boy or looking for artists for Elektra. And what I'm hearing now is that it seems to be a lot less about what you like and a lot more about like research um, and what's popping. Would you say that? Well, not uh, so. So I didn't sign those guys on hard research, like looking at analytics, which I'll get to in a minute for for some other stuff I did. But I um I started looking at what moved the kids hmm. and what connected on the blogs, and Dicky was killing on the blogs. So that was it, and that was like the end of the blog thing. But I was early on the blog thing. I knew him really. I I studied that world because. What I neglect to say is in the interim of having another A&R job, I consulted for that brand 10 Deep, and I helped put together a kid called Cuddy, mm. the mixtape. Because I met Cuddy, I knew Pat and Emil. I don't say I hands-on helped put it, but I helped connect everybody and roll it out, and it was a huge success. And that was when I was at SRC, and so I knew what the new shit was. And and I, I tried to sign the cool kids at SRC, and we didn't do it. We it, it was all fucked up. But I knew that when that happened, I was in the middle of that. 
I was blogging. I worked for streetwear brands. I saw how fashion was influencing rap in a way it never had before. Streetwear in particular, which I have a long relationship with because I was the original Stussy model. Right. And, and, you know, I, I was around that world from skating. I knew all that shit. Those are all my friends who run those brands. So, you know, I've been on the Free 99 streetwear program since fucking that 80s. <laughs> so, so it was the extension of that. It started on the blogs and then it became more research. SoundCloud shows up. So, yes, it, it's more about what is going to move the ball because you're not going to find Rakim anymore. Right. You know, for every Kendrick or J. Cole, that's an aberration almost, right? And so I tried to sign Chance. I believe he was an aberration. Mm -hmm. He was amazing, right? So, and, and um, a few other things that showed up that I believe were amazing. So the other stuff is predicated on, I like it enough that it, it's cool and it's moving the ball and I'm not afraid to stand next to it. Right. Certain things I don't want to stand next to. So I'm adaptable. I'm a survivalist. I signed David Banner. I understand things, right, uh, outside of my own personal wants. As I would always say, I can listen to Rakim on my time. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm adaptable and aware. It's funny, like, all the shit that I found when I fast-forwarded a bit and was on all the research calls every week and helped run them, I found, every, you know, everyone has the same research, but I, I called out five things that have blown up that for reasons, for various reasons, I did not get to sign because I had a deal at ADA where I could take things to Atlantic too. And I found a lot of shit that I was not able to reel in for various reasons. Mm -hmm. You said you were going to touch on research more. Was that it right then or was there more to say about that? No, nah, there's, there's a whole lot more to it. So A&R is research driven now. I completely understand research. It's how I found Ugly God. I knew that water was a hit. I jump on your bitch like water. I splash on your bitch with the water. I feel like I'm 21 Savage. I pull up and fuck on your daughter. I saw the numbers. I saw what it was doing. That's one. And I also found Sada Baby, the last thing I signed, research. He was recurring. He would mm -hmm. never go away. In my guise of doing research, I came across Shoreline Mafia. Who else? Little Nas X, who me and a guy named Austin Rice, who's a great research-driven A&R guy, wanted to sign. We couldn't do it for, I mean, I'll tell you why. The woman at Asylum wasn't willing to put down a half a brick. She right. wouldn't do it. He got 3.5 at the end of the day. So who knows if we would have been able to do it or not. Mm -hmm. Other research things I tried to get were Goldlink, which I missed and chased like mad. He's another one I would like to sign my name to. Yeah, he would be one of those anomalies, right? Like moving units and, and also is like a real artist artist. Right. I tried to sign Samino, who's also mm -hmm. a real artist artist. So those are artist artist things I wanted to sign. I wasn't allowed to sign. Um, I also briefly in the interim of working at Warner Bros. managed Rock Marcy for like three months or six months. <laughs> He's someone who's great who I would sign. But but I, I know that that's got a ceiling. He lives better in the independent space. Yeah, completely independent and naming his own price and all that type of right, thing. Right, all yeah. that. And Griselda met with me very early on, but I didn't sign that because I, you know, that's some extent at a major. And look, I had a boss at ADA and he, he's a good enough guy, but he's a little disconnected from the culture. And he would, every chance he got to shoot holes in everything I did, he would. 
So sample, it's sample driven. Right. It's only one artist. It's not a conglomerate. It's not a label. It's this. It's you know. So I ran into that repeatedly, and then on the Atlantic side, because I didn't directly work at Atlantic, it was very hard for me to push things through. You know, Atlantic had a shot at upstreaming Little Dicky, and they didn't do it. Hmm. And and he told them, "I will be bigger than Macklemore." Right, and they could have had Freaky Friday, the record that streamed a billion times. Wow! But we didn't do it, and my guy, who I worked with, Kenny, didn't fight for for it to happen, and it went to BMG, which we distributed. So he felt that he was winning a little bit on that side. But to go back to talk about numbers, so for the last couple two years, I think I sat year and yeah, two years, maybe even longer, I would be on the weekly research call with all the guys at Atlantic, um, smart kids. I found Megan the Stallion. Everyone told me it wasn't it. Hmm. All the young people told me it wasn't it. And then from someone who I'll leave nameless, they said, well, we got Cardi. Why do we want that? Wow. Right? Because of, I don't know if you've seen her early videos when she's freestyle, when she was in the driveway, you know, she was rapping her fucking ass off. Boy, you know your bitch is not fucking with Megan. Hell nigga not even fucking you naked. He put the tip in and then you start complaining. If I get on it, I own it and take it. Yeah. it right? She's dope. So I was like, she's dope. She makes dope music yeah. in a commercial sense, and she was dope then. And that's another thing I'd be more than happy to put my name next to, mm. right? She's dope. So, Little Tekka, mm -hmm. and he, he was huge. Yo, my, my son put me on a Little Tekka. So, I tried to sign Tekka. I knew the manager, Giuseppe. I had, it was going to cost real money. Atlantic would never back me on real money deals. But they let other A&R guys, less seasoned than me, spent millions of dollars to sign acts that did not perform as well as Little Tekka. Hmm. I'm not going to name names. And one of one of the acts I wanted to sign for $300,000, they told me no at Atlantic. We didn't do the deal. And they went and signed him two years later for $3 million. Wow. And, you know, that really happened. And so I felt like sometimes at Atlantic, because I didn't work directly at Atlantic and or because I'm in my 50s, I wasn't listened to as much as I It others. wasn't taken as serious, yeah. Little Tekka, we had, the deal was ours at Atlantic. It would have cost us $2 million. I'm not going to lie. He pulled down three. Yeah, I'm saying but he would have made got, that back, yeah. Like, oh, he made it back. Made he back. made it back in a heartbeat. And he has a song on his first thing called Bossa Nova because I took him to Bossa Nova to eat. Wow. And he was mad cool. I was in the studio with him a few times. I, I took him in the studio. I don't want to sound like a bitter dude. But these are all the things I tried to sign. G-Eazy, Little Tekka, Samino. Giant Chance artists. The, like Chance the Rapper. Giant artists. Yeah. I mean, I signed Sada Baby. I signed Little Dicky. I was involved in Macklemore. Um, Little Mosey. Uh, who, who did I forget? Megan Thee Stallion. Fetty Wap. These are all things I tried to get. Little Nas X. The only person who really acknowledged the fact I tried to do all this, other than Austin Rice within Atlantic, is Orlando Wartenberg. Orlando Wharton. And that's my man. That's my dog dog. Because... You know, they brought in a new boss. I had signed Sada Baby. It's the last thing I, I signed. I was involved in the Guap thing. And and I got, I me and her, didn't, she didn't like me from jump. And she said I wasn't bringing things in, which is untrue. So I did bring in Little Tekka, by the way, and about five other things, a couple of which have popped. So she wouldn't let me close anything. Hmm. I was not allowed to close anything. So... I couldn't sign anything. Why? Because she wasn't fucking with me. Wow. Straight up. So I ended up leaving the company. And honestly, oh, here's, the, here's what happened. 
I, I didn't I didn't put it out there. I'm gonna put it out there. Fuck it. I'll tell it. I'll, I'll tell it. I'm not. You know. I got nothing. No shame in my game. I want to sign Lil Tecca. I was in Hawaii. He came in the office. I did a FaceTime. We didn't do the Tecca deal. And then I found this kid Tizo Touchdown. I don't know if you know about him. Nope. He's dope as hell, and he's buzzing. So I could have done a deal for forty thousand dollars. He wanted to fuck with me. Dude stayed in my house and everything. He's super dope from Texas. So they wouldn't let me. I'm, and she told me, I'm not signing that. I'm not doing that. I was like, okay. We got in a big, we got an argument about it. And she told me, I can't, you can't talk to me like that. And I said, dude, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. But, but you will never be the, you know, you, you're not going to be the end of me. I'm going to still like what I like and do what I do. And she was like, you can't speak to me like that. I said, I guess I can't. And I was let go a little while after that. And, and I'll tell you this. I talked to Craig Kalman after I got let go. And I, I told him it was coming. And Tekka had blown up. And I said, we should have done Tekka. And he said, if, well, you should, you, should have, um, you should have been at the meeting in, in New York when it happened. I said, Craig, I hadn't gone on vacation in three years. I was in Hawaii with my, my lady. Like, it's the only vacation I've ever had with her. And, and he told me that's why they didn't sign Tekka. Mm. So I don't know what the truth of that is. And I like Craig, but that was bugged out to me. And Tizo got signed to RCA. And, and this is bugged out too. I left the gig. I met with the guys at RCA. I sent him Tizo's music. He passed. They didn't hire me. And he, his, some younger A&R guy signed Tizo a year later. Same exact artist. Wow. So, look, man, once again, I don't want to sound like the bitter old guy. But you can tell oh. when you're being fucked with or, you know what I'm and saying? Here's the, here's the other thing. I, um, I had a group called Peso the Mafia from Baltimore. Austin Rice brought them to me. And I got to big up Austin Rice. That's my man. He still works at Atlantic. That's a good dude. He's a smart cat. He's a really good A&R guy. He's one of the few guys who could look at analytics and see an artist beyond just the research. Hmm. Right? We signed a group he found, Peso the Mafia. It didn't happen. They're from Baltimore. But the kid in the group, Shorty Shorty, was dope as hell. I knew that Shorty Shorty was not going to sign to Atlantic. His manager was my man. So his, his manager told me that. And they wanted to meet with other labels. And I said, yo, I'm going to plug you in with, with the guys at Warner Brothers, Aaron Bashuk and, and my friend Warren. And they went and met with them and they signed them. I was still working at ADA. But it was not comfortable. Hmm. So they signed him, and the kid's first record, Bituary, the research record, won platinum. I got nothing out of it. And I talked to my, I had a manager at the time, and I said to him, yo, what, what's that about? He said, you did a good thing for a good person. It will come back to you. Well, the Frisbee hasn't landed over here. <laughs> We're still so, waiting on that so, one. And, and that guy's no longer my manager. Hmm. I never got another A&R job. No one took me seriously. I don't think I was ever taken seriously, and I think optics had something to do with it. And I totally understand that. It's cool. You know, it's it's probably for a lot of people much, They, you know, let me hire the younger person of color um, to do that job and power to them. I think mm -hmm. that rap music should be, should be run by people of color. So, you know, I also think that I really still know what I'm doing, and I could name five things right now that I called, including Aaron May. Um, who's fantastic um, that, you know, people are all going after now that I was on a year ago, mm. or even things right now. 
And I, I recently, you know, I interviewed with someone recently, not that recently, and they strung me along for a long time. They didn't hire me. And it's a place where I absolutely would have been good for me to work at because I understand the architecture of what they're based on, real rapping. Mm-hmm. And the first guy they signed is not a, not a good rapper. He's an emo singer-songwriter, like a, a Dominic Fike, but not good to me. So, you know, I, I, um, Dominic Fike, by the way, is fantastic. He makes really fucking good music. And um, I feel like I still, look, the other ones, I, I try to sign things like, um, and that's another thing about working at a distributor. I don't think kids want a distributor anymore. They got TuneCore and DistroKid. What do they need a distributor for? Right. Right? So analytics will get you to that guy who's going to get millions and millions of dollars. Um, he'll get a big, big deal based on research. But but a lot of the other side of that coin, the Suicide Boys and the Puya, the long-term, long-hand guys, those guys only want a distribution deal. And if they do, they want to get paid for it. Right. Um, so it, it's a weird place, but I still, look, I still find things all the time. I'm always looking and I'm always finding things. And I've talked to a few people about, you know, doing A&R, but look, at 55 years old, I doubt I'm ever getting another A&R job. And I moved on. You know, I, I pursued writing and I have a couple of shows in development and nice. I'm working with some big showrunners and I got my book. And so, you know, everyone has their run and their time and there it is. And, I, uh, you know, in, in there too, when you talk about your ability to, to see talent and the fact that you still have that, you know, after, after all this time. I that think doesn't really go amazing. anywhere. If, if you're adaptable, it doesn't go anywhere. Like, but like, I think um, that's the part that's hard for people, honestly, is the adaptable part, you know? See, for me, it's not hard because, like, I'm really inspired by youth because hmm. I was a youthful cat who inspired people, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I see the full circle in it, and I know there's things that kids know that I don't know. Right. Right? And there's things that aren't for me. But I don't have to love it. I have to see how the culture surrounding it takes to it. And what they think is far more important than what I think. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm I'm not so ego-driven that I have to always have it please me. And so when I listen to new music, I listen to what I like in the new music, not what I hate. And there's a lot of things I don't necessarily love. And I tune out quick. But if I spend one afternoon in the wormhole i always find at least one thing i love that is so natural for me to like Hmm. so you know i see a lot of things out there that that if i'm the a and r guy i make a move on and that's the other thing look a and r is vastly different now because everyone has the same information right and no one wants to take a chance no one wants to gamble everybody wants to save bet everyone wants to you know and so if you're not lined up to be able to spend that $3 million, and I wasn't lined up as many years and as many hits and as many errors as I rolled through and as many things as I've done, and I'll pat myself on the back, as smart and as articulate as I am in studying this shit, I was not in a position to be able to write the $3 million check. Hmm. So, and you know, 25-year-old kids are, wow. go figure. You know, it's how it is. What can I say? I'm just going to shout out Orlando Wharton again because he's the one guy who always tells me, I'm, Yo, you're the GOAT. <laughs> like He's always like, you're the one. D, no one knows. Um, and he's actually, 
you know, been really cool about trying to throw things my way. And I love that guy. So, you know, it is what it is, man. You got to you got to move on and do other things. And and that's where I am. What's ironic is I'm working with this kid right now. I managed kid Langston Bristol and he had a reels that jumped off. And now everyone's calling me about him. There it is. There and I got is. young guys calling me and they don't know who I am. <laughs> See, and, and they're like, oh, yeah. And then, they'll, you know, they hit me up afterwards. and go, like, oh, shit, I, I Wikipedia you. I didn't know. See, that's amazing. You know, and just the fact that I signed, the last thing I signed to Sada Baby, and he's out there um, popping, you know, come on, man. I mean, you know how I know about Sada Baby? Because my son put me on to him because he's a uh, he's an emote in Fortnite. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay. Like, that's yeah. big. That's really huge. You know what I'm saying? Where it plays a little bit of the song, and you have your character doing his little dance yeah, yeah, yeah. shit. The dance. Yeah. I mean, Sada's, Sada's like, look, I don't even know him well. That's the other thing. When you sign guys nowadays, you don't get to know them well. You don't get to meet them and hang out with them. And all I mean, that. you do, but it's not like that's, it's not like it was. Like you know, the way I did A&R, I'm like with you. I'm right. in your studio. We're hanging out. I'm getting to understand your aesthetic. Right. That doesn't you gotta, happen you the way help, it happened back then. You got to help build the artist too, in a sense, right? You have to know what right. context to put right. them in to help them shine. But things come, things come fully formed now. Mm-hmm. Because people are doing all the work outside of the label. That's why you get the research numbers before you get signed. Because you already have a point of view. You're formed. Right. You already you already have an aesthetic. You already have. Right. Right. A hundred percent. And you know, you, you have to n- not swap the aesthetic. One thing that bugs me out is um, DJ Drama is like my friend. And before Jack Harlow blew up, he was sitting for a while. And he was like, yo, would Asylum want to do this? I was like, hell yeah. And my boss told me, nah, we're not fucking with that. Mm, there it is. Once again. I mean, and I was in Memphis early on, and Ali Chopper, I was with the dude. I was around it. I didn't get to push the button on it. Mm-hmm. Man, I mean, that's, I, you know, it's it's almost criminal to for us to sit at the end of of charting the course of your history up until this point, and to have all of these very clear accolades and very clear like evidence that you saw it all and you and you made so many right decisions it's it's so it's almost fascinating to hear that in that last phase you saw so much and you and you were with the people who had the power to make the decisions and they just wouldn't do it it's just it's fascinating to really to put that all in perspective i mean look mike it's the first time i've said it i've held i held my tongue about it mm-hmm. like you know i don't i don't tweet about it I don't really go out there and talk about it. I don't want to be the bitter old man. But look, I might have to wear glasses now, but my vision's very clear. Mm. You know, I can see it. I know it, you know. I clearly know it. Like I, you know, I called, you know, I called Doug, I called that shit, you know, 42 Doug, I called that. I called Baby Ray, I wanted to sign that. I keyed in on Detroit shit early. I seen all that, but you know, wasn't in a place for for me to get to do it. And cats I know who I don't think know what I know were and are, you know? And look, there's some great A&R guys out there. Orlando, uh, my man Tunji, who's going to run Def Jam, and and I suspect bring it back. Mm -hmm. He signed a lot of shit I love. Khalid, Brockhampton, that guy's fabulous. Yeah, I got mutual homies with Tunji. You know, my man Derek, who's still at RCA, um, he really knows what he's doing. Um... There are great A&R guys, Orlando, and some people who, are, who I'm not mentioning who I probably don't know who are really good. I think my friend Brock Corson's really good. There's guys out there, you know, who are really music guys, but I'm a real music guy. And, you know, a lot of people just reading the numbers off the charts. 
Well, I mean, I don't. It's all. It's all. It's all a lot to process. It's all a lot to chew on. Um, I mean, do I sound too bitter? Nah, you don't sound bitter at all. Like that's that's kind of the thing. It's like you don't sound like you're taking none of it personally. I mean, I there's there is a what does that do for me? There is a level of personal that it is, and you have to be able to see, like you say, you see yourself and and yourself aware enough to know, like, oh, this is happening because of X, Y, and Z, not because right. I'm not good at what I'm doing. You know what right. I'm saying? And like that's right. that's the interesting thing is that with all of the history, with all of the obvious wins, with all the home runs, you know what I'm saying? That you're still in a position where you get questioned that much is 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 the part that's fascinating that's the part it's that's hard to, out like, to me. wrap my head around you know it's bugged out to me man you know like i've i've said this to people before my biggest successes is when i was given enough rope to hang myself mm-hmm. and you know no one thought everlast was going to do it no one thought brand newbie could do it i had people tell me old dirty bastard wasn't the one when i did it macklemore got doubted mm-hmm. right you know and and others you know and it's bugged out I definitely feel like I I understand the culture still and the music and what moves it, mm-hmm. but but you know what? It's a young man's game, especially hip hop. It's a young man's game. I think a, a young young trap rap dude probably wants to hang out and be signed by someone who looks like them mm-hmm. and is their age as opposed to me. But I will tell you that I do still have my chops. I miss some. Look, I didn't. Cardi was there. I didn't see it. I really didn't see Cardi. Like, I, I can't lie. We all missed some. I missed Stoss Effects back in the day, mm. right? I've, we've all dropped the ball on some things. But um, a few a few of the ones I wasn't allowed to do really bothered me. Megan was one. Kid Cudi's one that always bothers me because that was a layup to me. I do know that I still know how to navigate it. And look, man, if I go on Spotify for one day, I will find several things I like happens every time. And I literally track, maybe I'm tracking 125 things right now just to do it. It's a hobby. I don't know what what else to do. It's like a hobby and I I phase in and out of it, but it only takes like a day or two to get back to know everything because I've already got all the leads and I know it all. And plus I got one thing that goes beyond the numbers. Ears, motherfucker, ears. (laughs) I can fucking hear. I can hear beyond your one fucking song. And if it's only one song or of the moment, that's okay too. Because you're cool for the moment. And we have a lot of things that are for the moment. This is a for the moment business now. Mm-hmm. There are very few Anderson Pox and J. Coles and, and these cats. That's not a real thing. But I also know the difference between the two. And I'm hesitant to bet the three milli on the of the moment. But if it's that career thing, I would bet that every time. Mm. Well, you know, I... Like I said, this part is is really fascinating to me, and I could ask you a million more questions, but we we are out of time on this episode and out of time on this. But what people are going to have to do if they want to hear more is read the book, man. Right, right. And you know, the book doesn't really talk so much about all the stuff I just talked about. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that was like necessarily so important in it. You know, it's 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 what it is, and and it's funny because this week I've been getting the calls about my man Langston, and and I'm like. Here we go. You know, like what they say, they say, just because the monkey's off your back, the circus ain't left town. Mm. You know? And that's kind of what it is. Well, me. you know, I, I just want to say before before uh, before we wrap that, uh, you know, it's, it's been an honor to sit and, and hear all of the stories. You've been responsible 
I mean, and when I say responsible, I don't mean like it's all on you, but you've just been very instrumental in a lot of work that's really important to me and a lot of people I know. And um, it's an honor and a privilege for me to sit and, and ask the questions and, and put some of these stories, have a hand in putting some of these stories out in the world so that you get somewhere near the appropriate amount of flowers in this motherfucker. Cause I don't, I don't feel like that happens in hip hop enough. You know what I'm saying? No, it, it doesn't. And, and I don't trip on it though, because the people who are important to me, the busters, the everlasts, they know the dot X's, the Dells, you know, the, the dominoes or the, the Pete rocks or stretch Armstrongs, um, the Muggses, those guys who, who I love and have experiences with, they give me my flowers. So that that's enough, man. Mm-hmm. All that other shit is, I don't know you. So that's that, you know, that could be that fake love. Like mm. it's cool, but you know, more more important to be loved and respected by your peers. And I feel like I am more than loved and respected by my peers. And that's what counts. You know, um, I'm a complicated person and I can't, I'm not easy always, you know, and I, I know that. So, you know, you take it as it comes. Self-awareness and vision, once again, that's where it's at. But uh definitely let it be said, we appreciate you. Stony Island Audio.